Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen, and welcome to another edition of 10 Good Minutes. On these episodes, I do a deep dive into a particular subject or question and explore the research behind it. We've been through a lot this year, between the pandemic and quarantine and social unrest and the consequences of an economy that feels increasingly out of touch with people's real life experience, it feels like so many things have happened to us that we have no control over, that have had a huge impact on our lives. And going through the last year, I think it's really natural to ask ourselves a simple question. How much of our happiness do we actually control? Before we get into today's material, I wanted to let you know about something that's pretty exciting. I actually created a video version of this episode, and it's going to be posted to my YouTube channel. If you'd like to check it out, you can follow the link in the summary of today's podcast episode. If you're a regular YouTuber, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to my channel over there. I'm planning on posting more videos related to these topics, and I'll probably branch out into some other content as well. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, you'll probably like my channel too. And also, hey, if you subscribe to it, you're helping me out, and I really do appreciate it. All that said, let's get into it. One of the underlying beliefs in the work that I do is that we have a certain degree of control over our well-being, that there are things that we can actually do in our lives that will improve our happiness in meaningful ways. But what if that's just not true? What if we really are just kind of a prisoner to our circumstances? If that were the case, this podcast might be useful as a source of entertainment or as maybe a kind of hobby but it might not be making much of a difference in people's lives. So this is a really important question to me to dig into. I started by taking a look at some of the research, and one of the world's leading researchers on happiness is named Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky. She's a professor of psychology at UC Riverside, and she's also the author of two wonderful books on the subject of happiness as well. Her research suggests that our experience of happiness, our subjective experience of it, comes down to three primary factors. The first of these is what she calls the genetic set point. This is all the stuff that makes up you biologically that you have no real control over. The second is life circumstance. This is all the stuff that happens to you in the course of your life, as well as a lot of things that you have very little control over, such as your environment that you get born into. And then the third factor is what she refers to as intentional activity. This is all of the stuff that you do in the world, the things that you can actually control. So most people would probably guess that these three things are all important, but how important are each of them? How much do each of them matter? So the first big surprise to me was that based on her and her colleagues' review of the research, she found that about 50% of our happiness, 50% of it, comes down to our genetics. This is based largely on long-term studies of twins, where they looked at identical twins, twins that share genetic makeup, and fraternal twins that don't have an identical makeup. They looked at identical twins that were raised in different households, under different circumstances, and then fraternal twins that were raised in the same household under similar circumstances. And what they found is that, really interestingly, the identical twins, those that had the same genetics and dissimilar circumstances, ended up being more similar in how much happiness they reported, even though objectively their lives were much more different. There's a certain amount of conflicting evidence here, there's a lot that we still don't know, and so you don't necessarily want to read everything into that, but it's clear that genetics plays an enormous role in how happy people are. And just speaking personally here, this gave me a lot of sympathy for people who go through life 
feeling just a little bit down a lot of the time. Yes, there's much that we can do, and we'll get into that in a bit, but there are elements of temperament that do seem to be given to us. Then, the big surprise for me. Researchers found that only about 10% of our happiness, just 10% of it, came down to life circumstance. And I was really skeptical about this number when I first ran into it. How could everything from how much money a person makes to the environment that they're raised in to, you know, who their parents are and the situation that they're born into only control 10% of how happy they are? That seemed really hard to believe when I first heard it, and digging into the research around it helped me understand it a bit better. One of the big reasons for the relatively small impact of life circumstance is something called hedonic adaptation. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you've probably heard this term before. But to summarize it really quickly, it's basically that people tend to return to a relatively stable level of well-being after good and bad things happen to them. Another way to put it is that we tend to be pretty adaptable. We adapt to our circumstances pretty well. So even if things change in really positive ways, our subjective sense of well-being doesn't always change alongside it. Some of the really interesting work in this territory includes studies that have been performed on lottery winners that found that people who won the lottery, you know, yes, their lives got better a lot of the time. A lot of the time they did report some more happiness, but man, it was not nearly as much as you might expect. And there were many people who reported no real change in their underlying sense of happiness even five or ten years out from winning. Also, as another detail here, it's worth knowing that these studies are based on self-report. It's somebody's subjective experience of happiness that we're talking about here. So what's a six for one person might be a three for somebody else. So accounting all of this instead of a study is a little bit complicated. Two people could come from wildly different circumstances, wildly different circumstances, and both say that their subjective well-being was a six on a scale of one to ten. So, getting back to our little pie chart, this leaves just 40%. 40% for the impact of intentional activity. This includes everything from the habits that we build to the hobbies that we devote ourselves to. So, to recap, that's 50% for genetics, 10% for life circumstances, and then 40% for intentional activity. I'll talk a little bit more about intentional activity in a bit, including what we can, you know, do, practically speaking, in order to experience more well-being and lead as fulfilling a life as possible. But I want to spend a little bit more time talking about that 10% life circumstance number. It's pretty common to see people take that number out of context, and it's often used as a, at least in my opinion, pretty problematic justification for why we shouldn't support vulnerable populations of people. That argument goes something like this. Why should we even bother addressing things like gross income inequality or, hey, racism, or whatever else when, at the end of the day, what matters is whether or not somebody can kind of pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, you know, the good old American rugged individualism. Because, after all, circumstances don't impact our happiness that much. Now, again, at least from my perspective, thankfully, that point is really not supported by the research at all. The fact that we do have influence over a good chunk of our happiness, and the fact that about half of it isn't left up to us at all, it's just based on genetics, doesn't mean that it isn't a lot easier to be happier under more comfortable circumstances. And we've actually had Dr. Lubomirsky on the podcast in the past, and I had an opportunity to ask her about that 10% number, which, again, struck me as really surprising when I first ran into it. So I'm going to play a clip from our conversation together 
where she drew some really important distinctions around that 10% number. So here it is. A pie chart of happiness is often misinterpreted. That 10% is surprising, right? Because we sort of think like, oh, if only I got married and I um, moved to that city where I want to live and then I would be happier. And those things do make us happier. They just don't make us happier for as much or as long as we think. There's a huge caveat, which is that there are some life circumstances that make a huge difference to our happiness and happiness. So if you live in a war zone in Syria, or if you're in an abusive relationship, or if you live in poverty, that's going to make you very, very unhappy. And so the 10% number only really applies to people who are kind of fairly comfortable. So to maybe reframe what she's saying here a little bit, what we're really focused on with that 10% number is people who fall into the relatively normal range of life circumstance. Maybe to just slap a number on it, these are people who are in kind of the middle 70% of the Western world. And we can think of this as applying to all kinds of life circumstance. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the impact of difficult childhoods, and it just seems very, very clear to me that a traumatic childhood has a far larger than 10% influence on somebody's ultimate outcomes in terms of happiness and well-being. So now we're wandering toward another very important variable here, money. Does money buy happiness? And there's kind of conflicting research about this. A very famous piece of research was done by Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton, who found that when people gained wealth up to about $75,000 a year, their subjective experience of well-being kept on going up and up. But once they got past that $75,000 a year mark, money and happiness decoupled from each other. They might be making more money, but they weren't really feeling that much more happy. But what kept on going up is something called life evaluation. So people evaluated their life as being more successful the more money that they had, but they didn't actually evaluate themselves as being any happier. Now, literally as I was recording this, new research came out that challenged Kahneman and Deaton's finding about money and happiness. The study was authored by Matthew Killingsworth. He's a senior fellow at Penn's Warden School. And it found that experienced well-being, that's the phrase that he used, continued to rise well after $80,000 a year. As the study states, this suggests that higher incomes may still have potential to improve people's day-to-day well-being. To sum up a kind of complicated territory, there's a lot of research at this point that suggests that money and happiness have some kind of positive relationship with each other. And what researchers are generally arguing about is how much of a relationship it has and whether there's some point of diminishing returns out there. More money gives people more choices. Taking the pandemic as an example, some people have been able to take off months of work fairly comfortably, while others have been forced to rush back to jobs that could well be very dangerous. It would be pretty challenging to argue that in that case, money didn't buy somebody some happiness. And there are, of course, other counterexamples here, like monks who give up most of their worldly possessions and lead very happy lives. But for most of the people listening to this, worldly people living in generally more Western cultures, it would normally make their life a bit easier if they had another $10,000 in their bank account. Either way, for most people, $75,000 a year is a lot of money. It's well above the median household income in the United States, which is around $60,000 a year. And at the very least before that point, it's pretty clear that money really does buy some additional comfort at the very least, if not happiness. 
In addition to things like financial circumstances, there were some other circumstantial factors that were found to be particularly important for improving somebody's subjective sense of well-being. The first one is how healthy somebody is. This makes a lot of sense, health impacts our lives a lot. The second is whether or not they were employed, and the third is whether or not they were sufficiently wealthy to meet their basic needs. So you probably could have guessed those three, but here are two more that you might not have guessed. The first is whether or not somebody was married. Married people tend to be happier. And the second is whether or not someone is religious. Now, as somebody who isn't married and wouldn't describe themselves as being particularly religious, I wasn't really thrilled by this. Wrapping up the conversation on circumstantial factors, if you've spent too much time on social media, or if you've spent really any time engaging with personal growth material and mental healthy stuff in general, you've probably run into several quotes from Viktor Frankl. These are quotes like, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Or, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Quotes like these can be helpful reminders or good sources of motivation, and they're a great testament to one person's ability to maintain a positive outlook, even under incredibly challenging circumstances. But I also think that they're gross oversimplifications of a pretty complex territory here, And there's a risk we run when we completely discount the impact that life circumstance has on somebody's subjective experience of happiness. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you can probably guess that I love Frankl's emphasis on personal agency, all of the various ways that we can be a hammer rather than a nail. The research really backs up that agency is one of the most important mental resources that we have, but it's not the whole picture. Feeling like we can make a change or have influence over our lives is probably a necessary condition in order to be happy, but it's not a sufficient one. It's not enough all on its own. Okay, so let's get back to that 40% number assigned to intentional activity. We have no control over our genetics. We have limited control over our life circumstances. To uh, bring it into the present moment here, I don't think that most people are quarantining because they want to, save for maybe a couple of extremely dedicated introverts out there. So it's our activities. These are things like building good habits, committing acts of kindness out in the world, and savoring acts of kindness when they happen to us, and things like expressing gratitude or optimism when we have the opportunity to do so, that represent probably the most promising route to sustained experiences of happiness. And this shouldn't really come as a surprise. We've all had experiences of these choices mattering. I'm generally happier at the end of the day if I've really given myself over to my good habits, if I've spent some time talking to friends, and if I've remembered a couple of the things that I'm grateful for. And I'm generally a lot less happy if I've spent a lot of time doom-scrolling through Facebook or getting really plugged into the news. I found it really helpful to think about the big kinds of intentional activities as falling into three different big categories, again taken from Dr. Lubomirsky's research. The first is behavioral. That's things like exercising regularly, waking up early, and having good habits around how much schoolwork you do or how much TV you watch. Then we can be intentional in our minds, cognitively. We can find opportunities to express that agency that we were talking about earlier. And we can do things like look for opportunities to reframe negative situations in positive lights, you know, assuming that we're being honest about it. Then we have volitional activities. This includes striving toward big goals and devoting ourselves to good causes. 
It's not really the most scientifically validated method ever, but if you do something that contributes positively to each of these categories most days, you're probably headed in a good direction. All right, so bringing all of this together, there are three big recommendations that I would make to most people. First, fight hedonic adaptation. It's very, very easy for us to get used to how good aspects of our lives are. We can gloss over small opportunities to feel good about ourselves. It's easy to take our friendships for granted, even our really great ones. And many people really struggle to give themselves appropriate acknowledgement for the ways in which they're really doing great and making good moves in certain aspects of their life. Kind of attached to that, one of my big hopes for what comes out of this period of quarantine in the United States is that it gives us a fresh appreciation for the many little things that we used to take for granted. Then, on the flip side of this, I think it's really possible to become too negatively adapted, and to just start to shrug at a lot of aspects of your life that really aren't going so well. And the more attuned that we can be to some of the negative behaviors that we've habituated ourselves to, the more possible it becomes to change them in positive ways. Second, you probably guessed it, claim your agency. You've heard this a thousand times, and I'm sorry if I'm starting to sound like a broken record here, but so much research suggests that one of the most important mental resources is the feeling that we can have inside of ourselves that we truly can make a difference in our lives. Feeling like your good work will be rewarded if you keep on putting out the effort is one of the most important contributors to our overall well-being and happiness. Third, look for your why. One study performed by a team from the University of Michigan found that there was a pretty strong correlation between having a sense of purpose in life and how long people lived for. And much other research has found that feelings of purpose, feeling like you can find meaning out in the world, is a major contributor to well-being and happiness. And I think that these three things, agency, purpose, and basically reminding ourselves of the areas of our life that are good or fighting against the areas of our life that are bad, are collaborative with each other. It's kind of like a three-legged stool. When we feel like we're working towards something, it's much easier to have a sense of agency. And when we feel like we're just not trapped in the way that our lives are, it's much easier to push back against hedonic adaptation. And also, these are useful kind of antidote experiences to the knowledge that, you know, over half of our happiness, according to research, comes down to stuff that we don't really control ourselves. But for me, maybe again, turning it toward the positive a little bit, that just really casts how important it is to take a lot of intentional action in the parts of our lives that we really do control. So that's it for today's episode. Remember, this episode actually came from a video that I made focused on this topic. That video is up on my YouTube channel, and I'd really appreciate it if you would head on over there through the link that I've included in the episode's description, and maybe even subscribe to the channel. I'll be making more content like this, and if you like the podcast, you'll probably enjoy it as well. And hey, it helps me out, and I do appreciate it. Also, it would be great to know if there are any other topics you'd like to see me explore during these short episodes. You can leave a comment on the video or send an email to contact at beingwellpodcast.com. Again, truly, thanks for your continued support. It really does mean a lot to me, and it's what allows us to keep on producing this content. If you haven't already, consider subscribing to the podcast, telling a friend about it, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. That's all for today. We'll be back on Monday with a conversation with the wonderful Tara Brock. 
Until then, thanks for listening.